Our text this morning comes from Jonah chapter 1 verse 17, reading through chapter 2 verse 10. Hear now the words of God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this word, for this testimony of thanksgiving in light of your mighty and strange deliverance. Father, help us to imitate Jonah in his righteous giving of thanks, and help us to learn from Jonah to correct his selfish pride. Would you guide us and strengthen us, equip us to walk in your ways this week through the word that you have ordained for this day. Bless my lips as I speak. Bless our ears and our hearts as we receive this word. May we receive it with faith for the good of our souls and for the glory of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, normally, God's prophets are the ones who worship God, and the pagans are the ones who get judged. Normally, being on board a ship in the middle of the sea means that you're safe. And being in the belly of a fish means that you're dead. <coughs> Normally, when you hear a whale song, the whale is the one singing. But nothing about the story of Jonah is normal. And so after God's judgment comes on his prophet, and the pagans are the ones who end up worshiping God, and after Jonah is hurled out of a doomed ship, and swallowed up by this great fish, we come to chapter 2. And if you were out at sea next to this whale, you would have heard quite a different song rising up from her belly. Well, this is, of course, the most famous moment in the book of Jonah. And it remains one of those Bible stories that people who don't know anything about the Bible, at least they know this story. It's captured the imagination of so many and, and filled our culture with songs, with paintings, with stories uh, from both Christians and non-Christians, uh, whether you're thinking of Pinocchio or Moby Dick or VeggieTales or the, the painting by Albert Ryder or the song by Bruce Springsteen. Jonah's captured our cultural imagination. And just like you, 
All these songs and paintings are divided over what sort of creature it was that swallowed Jonah. And so I want to get this out of the way right up front because ultimately it doesn't really matter. The Bible calls this creature a great fish. And although whales aren't fish by our modern classification, that's not how the Bible would classify animals. And so this great fish might very well have been a whale. We're just not sure. But oddly enough, it was only a couple years ago that a scientific study was published to argue that this part of the Mediterranean Sea served as a calving ground uh, for some certain types of whales. And strangely enough, a few years back, and then again, just a few months ago, a diver was swallowed by a whale and survived and lived to tell the tale. And that brings us to the matter of reconciling this account with modern science, which I also want to deal with briefly because that's not the Bible's focus. That's not the point of the story. But at the same time, many people have expended a great deal of, of energy and effort to try to account for and explain how it would be possible. One, for a whale to actually swallow a human being. Two, for that human being to survive inside the belly of the whale. And so they've been uh, measuring the, the jaws of whales. They've been digging up old newspaper clippings of whalers telling strange stories of similar events, trying to uh, account for this story, trying to either prove or sometimes disprove uh, the biblical record. But while these things have their place in apologetics and in coming to understand God's work in the world, historical and scientific studies are ultimately beside the point. Because the text tells us, Jonah 1.17 says that God appointed this great fish to swallow the prophet. God took a specific and unique action to direct this fish to take this action. And this word appointed is going to keep showing up throughout the remainder of the book of Jonah to signal God doing something special and unusual and not simply just another instance of nature taking its course. When God appoints something to happen, that lands us in the realm of the miraculous, of the direct action of God. And as Christians, we confess that the single most important event in the history of the world was the death, burial, and resurrection of the man Jesus Christ. And so for Christians, resolving this matter takes the course of faith. If God can raise the dead, then certainly God can direct a whale to swallow a prophet, and God can keep that prophet alive for three days. Scientific studies may be interesting, they may be helpful, Historical records are certainly fascinating. Reading accounts of whalers who got swallowed up is a remarkable thing. But that's not the foundation that our faith rests on. We believe in the God who appoints whales to swallow prophets, and we trust his word. Well, Jonah's whale is shocking. It's fascinating. It's endlessly evocative. But it turns out she's really only mentioned a few times in the book of Jonah, primarily here at the beginning and then the ending of Jonah's whale song. And however catchy the, the VeggieTales version might be, in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah sings his own song from the belly of the whale. 
And his is a psalm of thanksgiving, of praise to God, glorifying God and celebrating the central truth, really, of the whole Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah concludes. And so we'll spend most of our time exploring how God saved Jonah with the help of this merciful whale. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, we finally see Jonah doing something that he's refused to do for far too long. He prays. Jonah would not go speak for God to the people of Nineveh. Jonah would not call out to God as the ship is being battered apart in the storm. But at last, as he's sinking to the bottom of this raging sea, his proud boast, throw me into the sea, I'm ready to die, gets washed away as he realizes that he is drowning. And so he cries out for mercy. He screams out to God for deliverance. And that initial prayer in the water that we don't have recorded what words he used, if it were me, it would be mostly screaming. But God heard that prayer. And so what's recorded for us in chapter 2 is Jonah's thanksgiving prayer. He's recounting that prayer and turning it into a psalm of thanksgiving. And what he's doing in his psalm in chapter 2 is cutting and pasting fragments of some people have counted as many as 100 other psalms into his new psalm in the belly of the whale. The, the language of Scripture is rolling off of Jonah's tongue here in the belly of the whale, taking uh, a verse here, a sentence there, even a key word from another psalm and putting it all together to express his thanks, his joy to God for this mighty deliverance. Especially, you can find Psalm 18, Psalm 42, Psalm 120, and maybe most famously, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, uh, which seems to very, very much track with Jonah's experience, even though it was written in a very different situation. Jonah knows the Psalms. He knows his Bible. He understands God's word and God's ways. But it takes this downward trip to Sheol to drive those truths from his head into his heart. And in fact, it's actually going to take a lot more work in Jonah's life for those truths to start being lived out in glad obedience. We're not sure at the end of the book if Jonah ever fully gets there. But this reality that we see of a prophet who finally, in turning from his rebellion, turns to God and uses Scripture to thank God, well, this should cause us and lead us to pray that God can do that same work in our hearts without needing to call for a whale. As we sing the psalms, as we learn to chant the psalms, as we take them into our hearts and minds, part of what we're doing is preparing for our moment of distress, for our moment of need, for our moment when we cry out to the Lord, what words will we use? Well, God is working the psalms into our hearts so that in those moments the psalms will flow out of us in heartfelt praise and thanks. But at the same time, we cannot be content with just knowing the right words to say. We need to move beyond that to be using these words to express a heart that knows and loves God, that is, yes, thankful for deliverance, but also a heart that is willing to submit 
to what God wants us to do. And it's not at all clear that Jonah is there yet. Jonah is most certainly thankful for deliverance. But is he ready to obey? Well, we'll find out in the weeks to come. But if I memorize the book of Psalms and have not love, well, what am I but a lousy prophet sinking to the bottom of the sea in the belly of a whale? Jonah is learning that knowing the Bible is good, but loving God and obeying God is even better. And all throughout this prayer, we are encountering Jonah getting a new perspective, starting to understand what has just happened to him. In chapter 1, of course, we read that the sailors hurled Jonah into the sea. Well, as Jonah prays from the belly of the whale, what does he say? He tells God, you cast me into the deep. The sailors were acting on behalf of God. This is God's plan. This is no accident. Jonah sees God's hand at work. In chapter 1, verse 17, from the human perspective, Jonah is in the belly of the whale. But in his prayer in chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah sees himself to be in the belly, or better, the womb of Sheol, the biblical name for the place of the dead. Chapter 1 tells us Jonah fled from before God's face, which often has reference to the temple. Jonah flees away from the temple, but then in chapter 2, verse 7, Jonah realizes that he still has access to God's temple in prayer. His prayer from the bottom of the sea reaches the temple of God as God hears him in his distress. And most importantly, Jonah in the water knows God's judgment. But Jonah in the whale sees God's mercy and salvation. As James 2.13 says, mercy triumphs over judgment. But as much as Jonah's eyes are being opened, there are hints that for all the lessons he has learned, he still has a long way to go. He rejoices. He gives thanks that he's been delivered and saved from distress and danger. But he doesn't breathe a word about guilt or repentance. There's no indication that Jonah is sorry for disobeying God or running away from him. All we see is that Jonah's glad that he didn't drown in the ocean. And of course, that's something to rejoice in. But Jonah still seems to have a hardness in his heart that God will need to work on. In fact, you can see this in verse 4. Jonah talks about being driven away from God's sight. Oh, I can't wait to get back to the temple, Jonah says, which is an odd way for Jonah to describe the fact that he actually disobeyed God and ran away from the presence of the Lord. He wasn't driven away. He ran away. The way he's telling it in his mind is not quite accurate. We'll see a couple more of these missteps in the rest of the prayer, but even here we can find encouragement, can't we? God hears imperfect prayers from imperfect prayers. When our prayers end up being selfish, self-centered, and when we spin the situation that we've encountered uh, to our favor, to turn us into the good guys, God still hears. We don't fool God. <laughs> we haven't 
made our case successfully that actually we're the, we're the righteous ones and the circumstances are the problem. But this doesn't cause God to reject our prayers. This doesn't close God's ears to our need. When we pray, even poorly, God is merciful and hears us. Jonah still has to work on his pride, on his self-righteous heart. But fundamentally, he's no longer running from God. He's reached the bottom of this journey that has gone down and down and down and down. He's reached the bottom, and God has turned him. Yes, he's still sinful, but he's doing exactly what sinful people need to do, to cry out to God for salvation. And so as we chart this journey that's brought Jonah to this point, the text is giving us a clear picture of death and resurrection. Jonah descends into the underworld, and God lifts him up again. As a, as a psalm or a song, Jonah's prayer uses these images, this poetic language, to convey a very grim situation. He finds himself in the belly of Sheol. The waters close over him. The weeds are wrapped around his head. The bars of the underworld close upon him forever, he says. And his life is fainting away. Jonah is as good as dead. That's the state that he's reached. He's gone down to the roots of the mountains, the very bottom of the world. This is as far conceptually as it's possible to get from the mountaintop where you meet God. When you lift up, when you are lifted up into God's presence at the top of the mountain, at his temple, that meeting place between heaven and earth, Jonah is as far away from that location as it's possible to get. And the biblical scenes that Jonah's language is, is reminding us of are things like Noah's flood, Pharaoh's army being drowned in the waters, this Red Sea or Reed Sea, which interestingly is the, the same word for these weeds or reeds that are wrapped around Jonah's head. But Jonah isn't on the ark. Jonah isn't one of the Israelites who have passed through the waters if Jonah is any character from the Old Testament right now, he's Pharaoh. And if there's any character from the Old Testament that you don't want to be, it's Pharaoh, drowned in the ocean. But Jonah is realizing his mistake. He's learning that even there, even when he's adopted Pharaoh's role, God might still have mercy on such a person. He's being judged, he realizes this, just like the sinful world in Noah's day, just like Pharaoh and his army. He's experiencing in himself a preview of what would happen to the Ninevites under God's judgment. And as soon as Jonah tastes the judgment of God, he cries out for mercy. And in the kindness and love of God, there is mercy for Jonah. Verse 6 says, I went down. But you brought me up, O Yahweh, my God. And remember, the salvation that Jonah is celebrating at this moment comes in the belly of the whale. He's still inside a whale and says, this is the place to start celebrating. He's not saved from the whale yet. He's saved by the whale. And we're not entirely sure how or why Jonah concludes that being swallowed by a whale equals 
salvation. But he knows that it does. And so as he sits there praising God, his psalms, his psalm gives us hints about what's going to come next. In chapter 1, verse 17, he's in the belly of the fish. But in chapter 2, verse 1, we find out that this fish is a female, leading uh, some to translate chapter 2, verse 1, so that Jonah is not in the fish's belly, but in the fish's womb. And in chapter 2, verse 2, this idea is supported by this word for distress, which is often used as the same word for birth pangs. And then there's a reference to the womb of Sheol as the location where, where Jonah has descended to. And the word for belly in 117 and 21 can mean womb, but it doesn't have to. But then this other word uh, for the womb of Sheol does mean that Jonah is in a womb. And the point is that he's going to be reborn. He's been brought down apparently to death, entombed in a whale in the sea, but this is not a tomb. It's rather a womb. Jonah will be born again. And so this whale song is depicting Jonah's journey to Sheol and back, a journey of death, but also resurrection, metaphorically, if not literally. And this is just one more reason why Jesus points to Jonah and says, do you want to understand my ministry? Well, look at Jonah, three days and three nights on a journey of death and resurrection. But in the middle of providing this wonderful example of the ministry of Jesus, Jonah is also showing us why we needed Jesus to come in the first place. Because in verse 7, we see Jonah telling us something true, but he's getting the emphasis painfully wrong. Remember, his language is meant to remind us of the flood story. And in that story, in Genesis 8, verse 1, after the judgment, the text tells us that God remembered Noah. God signaled his remembering of, Jonah, of Noah by sending a dove, which we've talked about. Jonah's name means dove. But here in Jonah, we read just the opposite. Jonah says, when my life was fainting away, he doesn't say, the Lord remembered me. He said, I remembered the Lord. That's true, but it's also trivial. What's important is that God remembered Jonah and sent salvation. Jonah's desperate prayer doesn't save him. God saves Jonah. So we see that Jonah has turned back to God, but he still has a ways to go. And the more we see the hints here in chapter 2, the less surprised we'll be when we get to chapter 4, where we find out that Jonah still does not understand the depth and the scope of the mercy of God. But nevertheless, the central point of verse 6 remains. I went down, Jonah says, and you brought me up, O Lord. And so in verse 9, we have a glorious summary of the message of the whole Bible. Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And he's not just confessing that God does the saving, but also that who God saves, how God saves, when God saves, and why God saves is all in the hands of God. Humans can't engineer it or earn it or sometimes even explain it. Salvation can come in the belly of a whale because salvation belongs to the Lord. But once again, Jonah would probably be better served to talk more about God and less about himself because in verse 8, he decides to make this boast. 
against pagan idolaters. Those who worship idols, he says, lose out on any hope of mercy. But not me, because God loves me. And so I'm here thanking him, offering sacrifices, and paying my vows to him. Of course, as we heard last week, the pagan sailors offered offerings to God, and they lifted up sacrifices, and they vowed vows. And as soon as the word of God came to them, they heard and obeyed. The mercy of God can turn an idolater. It does not mean that there is no mercy for idolaters if they repent, if they hear the word of God. And in fact, the sailors didn't even need to go to Sheol in the belly of a whale to learn their lesson. So Jonah's boast here falls pretty flat. He doesn't seem to be self-aware of his own embarrassing and humiliating role in the story. And so it's almost humorous, isn't it, when God just orders the whale to go barf Jonah up on the beach. He receives this prayer, but Jonah still has a way to go. And the sailors that Jonah thinks he's better than, by now, three days later, have reached their destination in a boat. But Jonah is dumped on the curb by a whale taxi. But in spite of all his foolishness, the main point is that Jonah is not drowned in the depths of Sheol. He's alive and he's well. He's back on the shore. He has received unimaginable mercy from God despite his disobedience, despite his running away. And God deserves all the thanks and the sacrifices and the praise that Jonah could possibly offer. The great fish has in fact served as Jonah's ark, preserving him through the flood of his own rebellion and sending him back onto the dry land. So at this point in the book, Jonah has been humbled and he is turned back to God. He understands that he cannot run away from his commission. He cannot successfully disobey God. Now he doesn't fully appreciate what just happened. He doesn't even fully understand the meaning of the wonderful words that he's saying. But he does grasp the heart of the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's interesting that we find this truth in the middle of the book of Jonah, the very heart of the book, which is itself at the heart of the book of the 12 prophets, which is itself at the heart of the Bible, as we know it. The central message, rather literally, is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so far in Jonah, we've seen amazing hints of how the gospel of Jesus will bear that out. Salvation has been credited to God's sheer love and mercy, not to human effort, like rowing harder or, or getting rid of the cargo. Salvation is not even credited to faithful membership in God's covenant people. That's not why Jonah was saved, because at this point, Jonah has not been faithful. No, the lesson is that God saves runaway rebels. And not only that, but God makes substitutionary sacrifice central to his plan. We saw that last week. Jonah goes into the sea so that the sailors can be saved. In chapter 2, this picture of salvation continues to be filled in as Jonah is saved through a three-day journey of death and resurrection. There is enough gospel in Jonah for Jesus to declare that Jonah functions as a sign 
of his own ministry, his own saving work. And so as those who know and love and have been called by this gospel, how much more should we give thanks and praise for our greater Jonah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who spent three days and nights in the heart of the earth as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place, as a testimony of God's steadfast love and mercy, not for generally good people, but for runaway rebels like us. So if Jonah gave thanks, how much more should we? If Jonah lifted up songs of praise, how much more should we? And if Jonah knew enough to confess that salvation belongs to the Lord, how much more should we magnify that salvation that we have seen and heard through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? So let us give thanks to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you and we praise you for this marvelous mercy. We thank you that even in our stubbornness and sin, even in our self-righteous prayers, you hear and you save, not because we are righteous, not because we're so good at praying, not because we have obeyed, but even when we don't. We thank you for this mercy. We receive it with glad thanks and we glorify Jesus Christ who came to save us from the heart of the sea and bring us back to the dry land where we stand in your presence. So open our ears to receive your commissioning on our lives. We ask for this in Jesus' name, and amen.